0: God's been laying on my heart a lot. I've done a study of Nehemiah in the past, uh, but there's, there's so many truths found in this book, and, and I'm hoping that we can look at it through this morning. But before I do that, i give you a brief testimony. A lot of folks I know aren't real familiar with who I am. Uh, my name is Bob Marshall, and I became a member of the church last week, but we've been attending here for quite a while. I really appreciate this church and ministry here. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. Both my folks got saved at an early age were very active in the local churches that we attended. And I say churches because my father was in the Air Force. I don't think that we just hopped around churches with church. But as we moved, we found other places and my parents were always really good at getting connected and getting us into churches and getting active. And I at the age of nine realized for the first time that I had never truly accepted Christ as my personal Savior. Although I had gone to church and it, doing the right things and was obedient as a kid, I really had never made that step of faith and it did that when I was nine. And thankfully, because of the upbringing I had, uh, we lived in a home where uh, God was the center of everything. So there really was never a major instance in my life where, you know how in some people's testimony they talk about some some very obvious sin. Uh, But the reality was, is although I had accepted Christ, I still needed to grow in Christ. And there were times in my life where I was a lot of inward rebellion. And it wasn't until I was 19 years old that I realized that I had not fully given my life over to God. I hadn't really looked to figure out how he was going to use me. And at that point, God allowed me to go to the Life Bible Institute. It's a Bible institute out in New York. Spent a couple years out there studying the Bible. And really enjoyed that experience. One of the greatest things about that was that at Life, you don't just get to learn the Bible. But you have to apply it so that you can take on a ministry. You have to be involved in a ministry. And the one ministry that I was in that I was clearly not going to sign up for, and for some reason, God had it in his mind, that that's what I was going to do, was open-air evangelism. And I don't know if you've ever been in a major city and had people stand on the corner and preaching. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine being the person doing it. <laughs> uh, it definitely uh, tested me in a lot of different ways and allowed me to see God in a completely different you know, way. And we did our open-air evangelism in New York City. And in New York City, it doesn't take much to get a crowd. You stand up and say... Ladies and gentlemen, I have something to share with you, boom, 50 people are standing there, one voice in what you have to say, and it was just a, a very unique experience. Well, while I was in real life really felt God was calling me to work with youth, and so when I came home from real life to Washington State, where my folks had lived, um, I was able to get involved in our church and our youth group, and ended up becoming a youth pastor for a couple different churches through my time down there, and really enjoyed that opportunity. And while I was a youth pastor, I was reading a book called Back to the Heart of Youth, in that book, there was a challenge by the author to see if there's a way, as somebody who ministers to youth, to be where the kids are at on a daily basis. And it encouraged people to say, hey, if you can get into the schools, do that. But one of the things I really loved about being a pastor was the teaching part. Being able to get up there every Sunday or every Sunday and teach to the teens and have those discussions. And I thought, you know, I could do that. I could be a teacher, maybe a substitute. So I hadn't received a bachelor's yet, so I went back to school. I got my bachelor's in education. And really realized that God wasn't just saying, I want you to school as he's, I want you to school full time. So I became a teacher and taught high school history, social studies for a while. My wife and I were, had the opportunity to work out at Hooper Bay, which is at the the Yukon River, where it was the Bering Sea. Spent three years out there. Went back to Washington to work. And through the, the different experiences we had, God called me into administration. Never thought I'd be a principal. However, that's what God's called me to do. And thankfully today, I'm here to catch as the principal of the high school. Really appreciate that opportunity. And people tell you all the time, you know, public schools are terrible because God's no longer in the schools. We kick God out of schools. I'm here to tell you, God hasn't gone anywhere. He's there. And he's there because Christians are still standing up and saying, this is what we need to do. And God gives us the opportunities to share the gospel. It's amazing as a principal how often I get to share the gospel with kids. It really is. And if you ever want to know, I can share you with some of those in the future. I can sit down with you and share you with you, a few testimonies about that, but it, it is just amazing how God works, and we're going to hear about uh, somebody this morning in the life of Nehemiah, and how God used his life to be an influence and to be a leader um, for, for those situations, but let's go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll start the first one, I'll take him to get there. And often when we think about leaders in the Bible, Nehemiah is not usually the first thing that comes up. You think in your mind of who you consider a strong leader that you read about in the Bible when you study the Bible. And you can probably think about David. You can probably think about Solomon. You can probably think about Abraham or Moses or Joshua. But Nehemiah often gets overlooked. But one of the things that Nehemiah recognized is as a leader, there was a real importance to the power of prayer. So let's take a look at Nehemiah 1. We'll read all the way through chapter 2, verse 8. There's really not that many verses, so don't worry. Um, let's go ahead and stand as we read word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love of those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, in my Father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. In the sight of this man, now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to, go- given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they, may, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God. If you could define the word leadership in just using one word, it would be influence. Think about that for a second. We often take a look at ourselves and people say, hey, we need leaders. Yeah, I'm not much of a leader. However, when you define the term of leadership and someone who is a leader as someone who has influence, couldn't we all look to ourselves and recognize that we are people that are considered leaders? Every single one of us in this room is a leader in some way or form of fashion, simply because we have influence. Harry Truman was quoted as saying, leaders are people who can get others to do what they don't want to do and make them like doing it. Now hopefully we're not in a position where we have to get people to be engaged or excited about something they don't want to do. However, if you have that kind of influence and you have those things in your life, then you can be that influence of people to get them to do the best and to get them we don't want to do You know, thousands of books have been written on the topic of leadership. And if you study the book of Nehemiah, you'll find there are things in there that are examples of what we also still see today when it comes to leadership. You know, how we deal with a touchy boss. You know, we have Nehemiah here who's dealing with the king. We'll get to that in a minute. But working with a king, you know, has its privileges, but it also has some things that don't make us such a great job. There's the balance between faith in God and personal planning. How to handle executive discouragement. There are times as a leader when we can be discouraged because things aren't going the way we want to. And then what to do with unwarranted criticism. How often are leaders the ones being criticized for what's happening or what they are leading? Well, Nehemiah's task was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he was to do that at great odds. Although we're not going to get through the whole book of Nehemiah to to share with you exactly how he got to the wall and what he did while he was there, it's really important to recognize that Nehemiah really was just an ordinary man. Sometimes we look at leaders and think they're extraordinary. But the reality is they're normal people, they're human beings. And God uses the ordinary people to do his work. And again, we're just scratching the surface here of the book uh, as as we start this, this sermon this morning. And before we really get into Nehemiah, I do have to give you a little brief history so you understand the context of why Nehemiah was being asked or in his mind understood that God wanted him and directed him to go to Jerusalem to build this wall. Well, we knew that in Jewish history begins with Abraham. A thousand later excuse me, a thousand years later, Israel took on world significance as a nation when Saul became king. <coughs> and then after Saul, David, Solomon. It was a great nation. It was a nation that people looked to. They feared that nation. But unfortunately, as those years went on, the nation fell away from God. And part of it was because of the leadership and the lack of focusing on God. And in first Kings eleven, eleven through twelve it says, Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes, and I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So if you know your history of the children of Israel, the kingdom that is divided when Solomon dies. Ten tribes migrate north, they become Israel, the two that stayed in the south, they settled in Jerusalem, were called Judah. But again, God promised that if his people turned their backs on him, then Eventually they would be held captive. And in 722 B.C., God judged Israel. The Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and it ceased to exist. Some fled south and were able to be in Judah, though most of them were taken away. Well, Judah also was not spared from this. And 586, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Jerusalem and took the people captive. Notice the Babylonian captivity. And if we read the 2nd Chronicles 36, and I encourage you to go there as, as I read it. The 2nd Chronicles chapter 36, last few verses, starting at 18. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So those that survived were now chained and shackled and taken 800 miles away to Babylon. And it wasn't, you know, a nice little ride and a paddy wagon. I mean, these folks were chained shackled and had to march 800 miles just to be held captive by a foreign power. Cyrus ruled Persia, and Darius ruled Medes. Here we're looking at a couple of different kingdoms in this particular area. And those two became an ally. And as allies, they went and overthrew the Babylonians. And it's interesting, as they overthrew the Babylonians, Cyrus, for some reason, and we know what that reason was, God put it in his heart, saw something special about the children of Israel and was concerned about them. And continuing in 2 Chronicles 36 and verses 22 and 23, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build my house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So as we see here, the Lord stirred up Cyrus's heart. So the question might be asked, well, is Cyrus a believer? Probably not. There's no indication that Cyrus ever accepted Christ as personal Savior. Obviously, this is the Old Testament, so he never put his faith in God. But this helps us understand that God's not limited just to working with people who believe in him. God can work in the hearts of people that have no desire to really please God. So as we begin to look at what's going on here with... Nehemiah, and how God uses Nehemiah's influence to stir the heart of a king who really has no desire to see the children of of Israel become a nation again. We just can can trust that God can be the same for us. And the influence that we may have where we are, that God can use that influence in our lives as Christians to influence others to, to please Him. Now there was three different returns to Jerusalem after the captivity. So as we saw in Second Chronicles 36, and 23, God had promised that he would allow the people to return. But when they returned, it took different times for them to finally get connected to what God's purpose was in Jerusalem. The first return was under Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was there to help build the temple. And it wasn't completely finished. And the people didn't necessarily, once they built the temple, go back to serving God the way God had designed The second group, 80 years later, was under Ezra. Cyrus had died, and Artaxerxes was now the king, which we found in chapter 2 as the king now that Nehemiah is with. And again, their mission was to rebuild the house of God. We just read about how the house of God under the Babylonians was completely just demolished, destroyed. So it was really important. And Jerusalem was an important city, because Jerusalem was the center of where God dwelt with man. And then the third group, was Nehemiah, 13 years after Ezra, and his mission was to build the wall. The temple itself was without protection for 90 years, and that's why Nehemiah needed to go back and build this wall. He knew that God's temple, God's house, was not going to be spared unless something could protect it, something was going to keep those enemies out, and he understood that. Another thing we need to know about Nehemiah before we really get deeper. Text is found in that last verse in chapter one of the Elijah. He says, "Now I was cupbearer to the king." Now I don't know if you understand what a cupbearer is. It's not just a butler. It's not just somebody who walks around making sure that the royal chalice is ready to go whenever the king is desiring something to drink. The cupbearer was the person who actually tasted all of the food and all of the wine to make sure it hadn't been poisoned, hadn't been tampered with, that it was safe for the
1: the reality is,
0: is the cupbearer, you know, they could die, and people could say, well, that's fine, well there's the king, he's still around. But there's more to this relationship of a cupbearer to the king. We often think it's just a public servant. However, to a king, think about how important it would be to have that trust, an intimate trust with somebody who's going to be a cupbearer. Because there are going to be all kinds of external influences trying to influence the cupbearer who actually had this relationship with the king to be able to influence the cupbearer to get what they wanted from the king. But instead, Nehemiah, being a man of God, really wanted to use that position to please God. And so he had this wonderful relationship with Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes used him, not just as a cupbearer, but also as somebody that he could communicate with about matters of state. And for some, that talked about history, about this particular position. They say that in some cases, the position of the cupbearer was only second to the queen. So that is a really intimate relationship. Think about Nehemiah now, understanding that, uh, and we'll get there in just a second, where his heart is, his passion is for the people of Israel, to be put in a position of kind of influence for the king. Nehemiah, I don't think, recognized when he was given this position, that he was going to one day have the opportunity to save his people. And to be used by God in some magnificent of us a way. Think about the situation you're in right now. You might be at work, don't recognize that you know, what you do is something that God could use in a mighty way one day. You really don't know. But as we look through the first chapter, we're going to see three things about leadership. There are three qualities that we're going to see about the man, Nehemiah. And the first thing that we're going to see is that Nehemiah cared enough to ask. So if we go back and look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Nehemiah is there at the citadel, which he's in Susa. It's the capital city. His brother Hanani comes. He's been on a trip to Judah. He's visited Jerusalem. And when people return from a trip, what is usually your first reaction? How'd it go? Tell me a little bit about it. Now this was his brother he was talking about. His brother went to someplace special, and think about how much more interested you are when you know your family member has gone to visit other family, or gone to a place that's special to you. How excited you are to hear about that trip. So as Nehemiah is talking to his brother Hananiah, he hears that the trip didn't necessarily yield great results. He has two very specific questions. He said, how are the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity? How are they doing? And second, how is Jerusalem as the city? How is it going? Well, I don't think Nehemiah realized when he asked those two questions that he was going to have a life-changing moment. And if you look at Scripture, there are other times, you know, in Exodus 3 where Moses, out caring for a sheep, heard God's call and eventually became a prophet. 1 Samuel 16, David was out shepherding, was asked to come in, Makes you know he's being anointed as king. It was an ordinary day when Peter, Andrew, and John, James, and John were just out mending nets after a night of failure. But then Jesus calls them and says, I want to make you fishers men." You never know what God has in store for you in any given day. So the question is, why would Nehemiah care so much about the remnant of the city? After all, he lived in a palace. He had all the amenities he wanted. I guarantee you, Having this position with the king offered all kinds of privilege that most members of the community did not get. But the reality is, is he had a tender heart. He had a tender heart for God. He had a tender heart for what God wanted to do with his people. Although these folks were in captivity in you know, Persia or also in Babylon, there was a group that apparently was still focused on making sure that God's word was getting spread out to the people, and that people were being taught the importance of Jerusalem, the importance of the city, the importance of God. So here's a man in a position that probably wasn't allowed to flaunt uh, his particular understanding about God, because we're in a community and uh, a kingdom that probably worshipped many gods. But to say that one true God was his God, probably didn't necessarily wear it on his on sleeve, however, with the Hebrew name, people probably... Identified him with that, understood that's probably what he believed. However, focusing on that beloved city, focusing on what was supposed to go on there, focusing on the fact that God really wanted his people back in Jerusalem was important to Nehemiah. So when he asked the questions, the answers were not necessarily what Nehemiah was willing to hear. Hanani said, the remnant. Has problems. The people who have excited, excuse me, the people who have survived the exile, they're in great trouble. <laughs> and in some versions, the word reproach is used. And that word means sharp, or cutting, penetrating, or piercing. It's the idea that the Jews there are being criticized and slandered by people who are enemies of the faith. So those folks who are living there in Jerusalem having had a couple of opportunities to go back and build up their city, but yet they have not been successful. And not only were they not successful, now they're just being made fun of. They're being torn down day in and day out by the enemies surrounding them. But the reason why Nehemiah asked is because he cared. Even though the truth hurt, I'm sure that he hoped that when Ezra had gone back 13 years prior, that the city was gonna take off as Ezra helped build the temple. And the people there were starting to realize what was happening there. And that work was so important that people would just rally around Ezra and say, what else can we do besides build up this temple? What else can we do besides build up God's house? How can we protect God's house from the people around us who don't care? Well, the second thing you see about great leaders is that Nehemiah cared enough to weep. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and mourned for days... And I continued fasting and praying before God. That, um, you know, a good leader is able to recognize needs that relate to those needs. He was personally concerned. I don't know about you, but I, for one, have probably never been to a point of misery and sorrow where I've probably wept the way that DMI has wept. Although I've been challenged a lot and, and doing this study and reading this, you know, I've been challenged in my own life too. Of, what do I care about? What do I really love? What do I truly care about to the point where if somebody said it's not going well, that my whole heart would be crushed and that I would want to just weep and beg God for help? You know, our pastor has a vision for this city. And it's great to hear some of the ideas that he has on how we can reach. But as we talk about how there's so many that are unchurched here, we find ourselves praying and weeping for those that are lost. no, I don't. I should. But Nehemiah did. He recognized that there was a personal concern there. And God gave him that burden. God gave him that passion. And he wanted to make sure that he took his issue up with God. So we see that deep compassion that Nehemiah has. And our normal response sometimes to, to those type of, of scenarios is pointing figures and trying to figure out, well, who's the blame here? When he heard that things were going the way they should, it would have been easy to say, well, how come Ezra didn't figure this out? How come Ezra didn't put, appoint somebody in a leadership position to have all this figured out? But he didn't do that. wept and mourned, and he acted on sorrow by fasting and praying, the Bible says. So many of us understand what fasting is, but I know it seems to be kind of a lost thing in American culture, and the purpose is to zero in on our walk with God, to take everything that we focus on and deny ourselves all that so we can focus specifically on what God is doing in our conversation with Him. Things we see about a great leader too is that they care enough to pray. Prayer is a huge part of the book of Nehemiah. This is just, in this particular chapter, the first of 12 instances where Nehemiah prayed. And if you're a good leader and you're a strong leader, your first reaction to any situation is to be talking to God. Talk to God. That's exactly what Nehemiah did didn't say that he wept and cried and wallowed in his pity and was upset and angry with Ezra and others who had gone before him, but immediately went straight to God and tried to figure out what should the response be? What can we do in this situation, God? How can we make sure that we turn back to you and recognize what you want us to do in this scenario? If you go back and read in verse 5, it says, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love of those who love him and keeps his commandments. Didn't we talk about that this morning in our worship songs? Standing on the promises. Nehemiah recognized that there are promises that God has given his people. And at this particular time, it wasn't time to point fingers and wallow misery, doing those things. It was to go back and focus his attention on God. Focus on those promises that God has laid out for them. By going to prayer, it helps us also focus that God is going to be the solution to our problems. I think in American culture, we're so built up on pride and so built up on becoming our own person and proving to people that we can do things on our own and that we're strong enough to handle it. I mean, there are a million books out there that talk about how you can be your best self.
1: And very few of them really talk about making sure that God is the center of your life.
0: Nehemiah recognized that he couldn't do anything without God's power. So instead of his response being an inward one, what can I do? How can I work this out? He went straight to God. Because how many times have you looked back at a situation after you've done things on your own without God's influence, without God's thoughts, you thought, oh, I got this, let's run right to it. And then as you look back at the scenario, you realize, you should talk to God first because, man, I messed that up. I really messed that up. And Nehemiah didn't do that, and he began his prayer praising God and worship. He recognized that God is the ultimate. O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenants. And if we're experiencing great affliction and are about to undertake a great work, I love how one um, commentator wrote this. He says that you need the great power, great goodness, and great mercy a great God. And Nehemiah recognized that. But Nehemiah's prayer goes on. It confesses sin. It would have been very easy for Nehemiah in his prayer to talk about the sins of the forefathers, talk about all the things that they had done that put the people in this place today. However, Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah does talk about the sins of the past. However, he puts himself in those sentences. He says in verse six, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So the very first thing Nehemiah talks about is the fact that he's culpable, that his family is part of the problem. However, he wants to be a part of the answer. He doesn't want to just be confessing the fact that he's wrong without recognizing that he has a responsibility And Nehemiah claimed God's promises in verses 8 and 9. And as you look at verse 8, says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And that is a quote from Leviticus 26. And in verse 9, If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And that's from Deuteronomy 30. Nehemiah understood the word of God. He understood the promises that God had given him. He understood that if Israel disobeyed, they were going to have to live in a foreign land. But he also recognized that even though that had come to pass, God also promised that one day they'd be restored as a nation and they would get to go back. So he was banking on those promises. He was claiming those promises that God had stated. That one day, if you obey me, you were willing to come back and do what I want you to do in the city of Jerusalem, have that relationship with me, that I will restore you back. And Nehemiah knew that they needed to get back. And he was very confident of God's deliverance. After all, their own history, they had seen God deliver the people from Egypt. And although he wasn't there personally, I'm sure those stories were handed down generation after generation recorded in the Bible. But I'm sure the oral traditions were there too, as they heard about the great deliverance of God, especially a people that's in captivity. They need hope. But the reality is their hope is real. They have God who makes all promises. The next thing that we see about this leader is he cared enough to volunteer. Sometimes it's difficult to put yourself in a position where you have to do something that you probably don't want to do. But there are also other times that God provides you some type of desire in your heart to be involved in the solution. Think about the very different ministries that are here in Kenshakan, not you after. You know, maybe some of you have felt in your heart the burden that maybe God wants you to take out that particular ministry and be involved in that. You know, that comes from God. And he cared up the volunteers. So while he's praying, the burden for Jerusalem became greater, and the vision of what he needed to do in order to get them back to Jerusalem became real. He understood this. He understood what God wanted him to do next. He also recognized towards the end of that passage that he was going to have to eventually take his request to the king. He asked that God would help him with that. And that he was going to need God's intervention if he was going to be successful. And think also, too, about what Nehemiah recognized he was going to have to give up in order to go and be in God's service. Remember, he's a cupbearer, he's hanging out in the courts every day, hanging out with the He knew that giving up to lead a group to build a wall would only bring him ruin, reproach, and ridicule. The same things the brother talked about when he came back. So this is what the people are dealing with. So he's saying, God, I understand you want me to leave this lap of luxury to take the people there. But because what you want me to do is for the greater good. And to your glory, God, this is exactly what I need. Well, one thing I also want to point out too in the dealing with prayer is that there are actually four benefits to prayer. There's a lot more than four, but there are four specifically that we could see here. Number one, prayer makes us wait. As Nehemiah prayed, he was devoted to prayer. It causes us to slow down a little bit when we stop and talk to God. The idea that if you take time to fast and pray, you can't be devoted to anything else it helps you realize that, that Time with God will allow a lot of different things to happen in that conversation with God. He can talk to you as much as you talk to Him. Number two, prayer clears our vision. Think about foggy days here in Ketchikan where it's so difficult to see across the water. I know folks that live in Penic or a who have a hard time getting across the water to to work because the fog is so thick. Taking time out for prayer, it help clear that fog over time to understand what God's will is for our life. Prayer also quiets our hearts, helps replace anxiety with a calm. There are a lot of folks today that deal with anxiety, and it could just be because God has a burden on your heart, you're not really sure exactly what it is you want, God wants to do with you, but take that time in prayer, he can quiet and calm you to a point where you can see exactly what God wants. And then prayer also activates faith. After praying, we're more prone to listen to what God wants to say. We're more, we have a better ability to recognize what God's will for our life is and to focus on those things. Hudson Taylor, a missionary, a great missionary, once said, It's possible to move men through God by prayer alone. I'll read that again. It is possible to move men through God. Sometimes you get to a place where your influence is only so good. And the only way that that authority figure is going to budge, it's going to move, things are going to happen, is because God is going to make it happen. Not anything that you can do. So you have to recognize that God is what moves these particular situations. Proverbs 21 talks about the king's heart is a steep stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It doesn't say the king who worships me, loves me, and follows my commandments as a stream of water. It just says the kings. Again, a reminder that God is ultimately in control. And the idea behind this verse is that this irrigation system where water is brought to specific areas is needed. So, so read the verse like this. Like irrigation canals carrying water is the heart of the king in Jehovah's hand. You literally see that God has the king's heart in his hand. That he can get the king to do what he wills. Nehemiah's situation situation perfectly illustrates this particular problem. So as we go to chapter 2, we're going to see a couple of things in regards to Nehemiah's faith. What kind of faith did Nehemiah really have? So we see that he was a prayer warrior. We see that he was a leader in a lot of different ways. But how did he exercise that faith? Well, number one, he had the faith to wait. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad in the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So what happened when Nehemiah prayed? Well, nothing by the way. You recognize that it says that Nehemiah found out the situation in Jerusalem in the month of Chislev. But he didn't get the opportunity to talk to the king until the month of Nisan. Now, most of us don't know what Chislev is and what Nisan is, and thankfully we are uh, theologians and Bible commentaries help us out of it. Four months went by. Four months of prayer. Four months of dedicating his time to talk to God about the situation Jerusalem. Have you ever prayed for something for a long period of time and not to have the result right away? It can be kind of discouraging, can't it? However, God expects us to be faithful in those prayers. God expects us to continue to talk to him and to find out what his answer is eventually. He waited, and he waited, and he waited. But God didn't take that burden away. God didn't take that passion away. Nehemiah was still working difficult, or working diligently to make sure that he did God wanted to do. What's really amazing about this is when something is really tugging on your heart, and you're really concerned about something, it doesn't usually show in your countenance. It can weigh on you a little bit. Four months went by, and the king didn't notice it. What's that tell you about Nehemiah? His dedication to God, the dedication to the task that God had given him. You know, I mentioned earlier, my dad was in the Air Force. One of the things that he used to tell, he was was an officer, so he would have uh, different duty stations and when he would take on a a different assignment. One thing he would tell the the men that were under his care was, I want you to know there's my priorities in life. My priorities are God, my priorities are family, and my priorities work. But I'm telling you right now, if I put God first in everything, you will never guess that there's anything else that's above. So work will always appear to be my number one priority because God is leading my steps in my direction. Well, Nehemiah had that same love for God. And he recognized that if he kept God first in everything, that God would get him through his days, he was going to be able to, to have those moments. Now, obviously, if there was a day that he was now showing this sorrow, that this is probably going to be a special day in Nehemiah's life, that God may be finally answering the questions that he'd been asking. But once the king recognized that, what was Nehemiah's response to the recognition of the sadness? It was beautiful. Nehemiah was scared. You've got to remember, in the king's court, the king was sheltered from a lot of things that would be negative to the king. You weren't supposed to be sad. There was a certain uh, personality and countenance you were to have when you were in the in court, and he wanted to make sure that he was doing those things. So when the king recognized that there was sadness, there was a chance that Nehemiah could have been executed. Get out of my court. I don't want this person around anymore. He is no longer able to take on this job. Because he's been my cop for so long and has so many of our nation's secrets, he needs to go. Instead, we see that the relationship that God allowed Nehemiah to have with the king benefited him in this particular So we see that the next thing that Nehemiah shows us with his faith is he also had the faith to ask. The king says, so what are you requesting? And immediately it says, so I pray to the God of heaven. The king says, what are you requesting? And Nehemiah the goes to prayer. Now, do you think this was an open prayer? Just, just a second. doubt it. Again, he understood the protocols of being in the courts. He recognized that if the king was going to ask a question, he needed to have an answer quickly. So this isn't the type of prayer where he stopped to meditate for a day or two to figure out what God wanted. It was a very quick prayer and probably similar to what many of us do in difficult situations. At least I know I do on a pretty much daily basis when I'm working in the situations I deal with in school, is I quickly ask God for wisdom. Thankfully, in James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says, if you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all about reproach it will be given him. But let him ask in faith and no doubt So this was a, a quick prayer that he threw up. But not a quick prayer that was careless. I mean, he'd been spending four months dedicated to prayer. Where fasting was involved. So he'd been talking about the situation to God over and over and over. But quickly he threw up a prayer saying, God, Help me out with this one here. I know we've already gone this far. Help me get to the end. George Morrison provided this insight. He had only an instant for that prayer. Silence would have been misinterpreted. And he closed his eyes and lingered in devotion, the king immediately would have suspected treason. And because Nehemiah had been bathing the situation of prayer, there's no doubt that God led Nehemiah's thoughts and attitudes during those moments of prayer. And he gave Nehemiah the blueprint that he needed in order to be successful get the job done. Because God had called him to do this great work in Jerusalem. He needed different things in order to be able to handle that position that job. And through those four months, what do you think God was doing in the king's heart? Softening his heart. And there's obviously a relationship that has taken place here between the king and Nehemiah because he didn't have to wait very long for the response from the king. In verse 6, the king asks him, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? To me, that tells you about the relationship, that Nehemiah was something special. The king had people everywhere that he could have easily replaced Nehemiah with. But the fact that he looked at Nehemiah and said, well, how long have you gone? I kind of like you man. I enjoy your service. And that he was willing to open up and say, look, I'll help you out here. Give me a time. Well, Nehemiah gave him a time. It was very direct very clear as to what he needed to do. And God honors that. God honors his plan. Sometimes we look at this and we we think, well, maybe Nehemiah was kind of going off the edge there by saying so much of what he, he needed. Maybe he acted a little too carelessly. However, I don't see it that way. Proverbs 69 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Four months of prayer, God was directing Nehemiah to be prepared for the answer that the king's, to the king's question. What do you need? A good leader sees God's lead and begins asking questions and planning. So when God moves and provides, there can be immediate action. You know, where will this lead us? How can I express this in clear, unmistakable, concrete terms? What are the costs, objectives, and possible pitfalls? What process should be used? Prayer activates faith. So that time of prayer activated that faith in Nehemiah's life. And in verse 8, it says in a letter, and, uh, excuse me, let's go back to verse 7. I said to the king, the I of the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah had this plan figured out and recognized that if he didn't prepare the way to get the letters that he would need, he didn't get the king's permission and the authority that the king gave him as becoming the governor, that he was going to find difficulty every step of the way to Jerusalem. So as he walked through and he needed specific materials, he wasn't going to have to go there and say, hey, by the way, the king sent me and have to go, yeah, right. Where's the seal? You have to go back and start over again. King, I know you sent me. Okay, I'm a little delayed. I didn't ask for everything I needed, I need this time. They Then get to the next stop and realize, oh wait, I forgot to get the permission from this guy. God gave Nehemiah everything he needed to be successful to get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible to begin this, this step. But the last part of this particular passage in verse 8, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The one thing that Nehemiah never did was forget that everything that was successful in his life came from his God. And the only way that he was going to be successful is because of God. And eventually, read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, saw the people the wall and ruins. Just like his brother had said, lots of opposition. Immediately the enemy made itself known, worked to discourage him, worked to discourage the people, did everything they could to get the people to stop building. And if you look in your Bibles you and look at Old Testament Jerusalem and you see the wall, it was quite undertaking, never read Nehemiah, you probably don't know this, but the wall was built in 52 days. Only from God did something like that happened. And only because God <clears throat> raised up somebody in leadership to do that. So again, coming to a conclusion for this morning, think back again to what a leader is. A leader is somebody of influence. I don't think many people in this room are being asked to build a wall this morning. Not many people are necessarily asked to, to go to a major city, a great city, and do a great work for the Lord. But we need to recognize what is it that we are influencing in our life? What is it that God wants us to really focus on today? And where can we be the influence? Is it your home? As a mother? As a father? As a grandparent? Reminding the little ones how important it is to have a faith in Christ? Is it at work? As our testimony is shared with others that we can lead people to come to know Christ their personal Savior. And as Christians at work, I caution you to really recognize how important it is to be the salt light, but to also express the truth of love. It's very easy, I think, sometimes for us to be judgmental. And if we're not bathing our witness in prayer, we're not asking God to give us opportunities in his timing. Again, we can find ourselves in situations where instead of leading people to Christ, we're actually turning people away. We have an opportunity in this community. We have an opportunity where we're at to be the leaders that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, God, for your word. We thank you so much for what it says to us. We just ask us to think specifically of Nehemiah's life and how you've given him opportunities to lead Give him opportunity to influence the king to do great works for you. God, help us as we look at our own situation. What is it in our life that you want us to do and to accomplish? To share that love that you have, that we may lead others to Christ and to a saving relationship with you. God, we just ask all this in precious name. Amen.